This episode of Eat the Rules is brought to you by You on Fire. You on Fire is the online group coaching program that I run that gives you a step-by-step way of building up your self-worth beyond your appearance. With personalized coaching from me, incredible community support, and lifetime access to the program so that you can get free from body shame and live life on your own terms. Get details on what's included and sign up for the next cycle at summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I'd love to have you in that group. This is Eat the Rules, a podcast about body image, self-worth, anti-dieting, and intersectional feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 245, and I'm joined by Ingrid R. Pipes, National Certified Counselor, who is fat, queer, gender nonconforming, and neurodivergent. We talk about how being neurodivergent informed Ingrid's relationship with her body, the difference between body positivity and fat liberation, and why we need more fat liberation, and why trauma healing as a form of weight loss is fake news. You can find all the links and resources mentioned at summerinternet.com forward slash 245. Before we begin, I want to remind you that for the month of October 2022, if you leave a review for this podcast, then I will send you a free copy of my best-selling book, Body Image Remix. I'll send you the audio version as well as the PDF copy. All you need to do is go to iTunes, search for Eat the Rules, click ratings and reviews and click to leave a review. And then simply DM me or email me. You don't have to show me the review. You don't have to screen cap it. I will believe you. I know that you're not a shady person. (laughs) Just message me and say, hey, I left a review. Can I have a copy of your book? And I will send it right over to you. Speaking of reviews, I want to give a shout out to Enchanted Mom who left this review, amazing podcast. The things I have become open to as a listener of this podcast have been life altering. I love Summer's enthusiasm and confidence that she shares with all of us. The idea of body positivity is new to me and completely mind bending. I am grateful I found this podcast so that I could learn about this super important topic. Thank you so much for leaving that review. It's that easy. You can also help me out by subscribing to the show via whatever platform you use. And don't forget to grab the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. If you are a professional who works with people who may also have body image struggles, I also have something for you. You can get the free body image coaching roadmap at summerinandin.com forward slash roadmap. Today on the show, I have the lovely Ingrid R. Pipes, she, they, who is a national certified counselor with a master's degree from Carlo University. Ingrid provides virtual therapy that focuses on fat liberation, self-exploration, and navigating structural barriers. Before becoming a therapist, Ingrid published works about body politics in Huffington Post, New York Post, and Rosewater Magazine. Ingrid has been engaged with fat politics for over a decade and currently manages the Fat Studies Facebook group, which provides community support for the advancement of fat studies. I love this interview. Ingrid is so full of wisdom, and I think that you're really going to enjoy it too. Let's get started with the show. 
Hello, Ingrid. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. And uh, I would love you to start by just telling our listeners a little bit about what your relationship with your body and or food was like growing up. Like, was that something that you struggled with? Yeah, I was born like a chubby, happy baby. And I'd like to think that I've stayed that way. Um, I didn't really have personal struggles with my body. I think I just recognized from a young age that lots of other people struggled with my body. You know, I remember going to doctors at very young ages and sort of getting all the hallmark fat diseases, trying to figure out why my body was larger than other kids. So like early PCOS diagnosis, um, ADHD, also trying to figure out, you know, my relationship to eating. And while it was a really big privilege to be able to find those things out very early on in my life, it also was this huge quest of like, why are you wrong? Um, and I kept feeling like I don't feel wrong. I like my body. I like where I'm at. And no one else seems to agree with that. I also went through times when I was bribed to lose weight or sent to trainers very young. And I'd talk with my trainers and be like, this is fun, but I would rather be out with my friends because I'm 14 and that's what you do after school. So my relationship, my body is not complicated and yet there's dissonance in how I feel about it and how I feel like I'm received by the world. Yeah, that's a that's so interesting that you're able to like it sounds to me at least like you didn't internalize then that message like that you're able to like hold it as like a different opinion. Is that am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, and that's another huge part of my identity is that I'm neurodivergent, which means my brain works a little differently. And I think that's one way that my rigidity kind of shined in that oh. I knew I wasn't wrong. And so nothing anyone could say or do to me would convince me that I was wrong. They had to be the wrong ones. And yet I could recognize that, you know, most people perceived me as wrong and I couldn't get myself to feel that way. Yeah. That's that's like that's so interesting. And so it's, it was almost like protective in a way. And that, you know, because I'm so used to speaking with people who have a you know a very similar story, but then they really internalize it and and then go on like this, like real, you know, quest to try and, you know, change their body and really internalize the shame. And and so it's really fascinating to hear how your experience differs from that and and how your experience being neurodivergent almost like protects you protected you from from some of that messaging yeah i really think that's a huge part of it as i try to explore my neurodivergence further that i yeah i really understood that something else was going on and i recognized that people didn't accept me and I kind of looked into that as like a social thing, why I was struggling with friendships or why I was struggling to be understood by other people. But what happens with lots of fat people as they grow up is people start to see that confidence and they're attracted to that. So at the same time that I'd be, you know, bullied on the street for just existing in my body, that I would also have lots of friends that'd be like, I can't believe you're so confident. I would love to be like that. And that offset those concerns for me, I think. So there was some mm -hmm. ebb and flow there too. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so what brought you to the fat liberation space? I'm not ashamed to say that it was probably Tumblr. Uh, I had a lot. (laughs) I had a lot of uh, like internal feelings about body positivity without any language, and I am from the MySpace era, so I was a scene kid who had way too many friends on MySpace. And when Tumblr came about, I was very excited to join that world and get to be. I was like one of the first adopters of the fat vanity hashtag because that was very much how my brain worked. (laughs) Um, And then I just kept seeing fat people living unapologetically, sharing their bodies with the world and using language about their bodies in a way I hadn't heard before. And that sounded very much how I felt about my body. There was a person that I followed named Jessica. I cannot remember their username for the life of me, but They, I think, started the Fat Vanity hashtag or was part of it, and they would post pictures of their body and they had fat pride tattoos and their entire life, their entire personality was rooted in fat pride. And that changed the way I perceived myself in that, well, someone else is doing it and I don't feel so alone in this. Um, So I just, I did like a swan deep dive. I now had more language. So I used those words and plugged them into other websites. And that's how I came upon Marilyn Wan, who made the scene Fatso. And I started like incorporating Marilyn's quotes into work that I was doing. And I got the chance to interview them a few times. And once, you know, one fat activist, they introduce you to them all. And I just very quickly built up a net of people that were using fat liberal language and speaking about it, like I said, unapologetically in this way that wasn't about appearance. And I owe it to Tumblr. <laughs> you know, I feel like Jess Baker was similar in that it was Tumblr that like was the thing that she discovered, you know, fat positive, like just going there and being like, wait a minute, people are proud of their fat bodies. Like, I feel like that was her. I can't remember if I'm getting that mixed up with somebody else, but that sounds right. There was a, a really beautiful group of people that got popular on Tumblr and then started writing and creating things together and bringing that to places like Huffington Post, bringing that to places like the hairpin and existing outside of Tumblr. But I feel like there was a time when we all knew each other. We were all reposting everybody's stuff and the community felt really strong on all these different blogs. I mean, I did the same thing. I started writing. That felt like the right way to share what I was learning there with other people outside of Tumblr's realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so cool. I know it's like social media can be uh, such a detriment, but in instances like this, like it really allows you to like, you know, get into a community that maybe otherwise you would not be able to to access. And then and that can be like pretty revolutionary for, yeah. for you and for, you know, for, ever, for all of us, really. Amazing. Amazing. So I would love for you to speak to the difference between body positivity and fat liberation. Yeah, I'm gonna try and be delicate, but it's it's a heated topic. Uh, <laughs> <but> I, <laughs> that's why I brought it here. <laughs> yeah, I think that body positivity is digestible. I think that's what it's mm-hmm. become like it's chewed up little sister of all the 
political activism that came before it. I think it's dominated by straight-sized people at this point as a way to feel empowered instead of criticized when they publicly body check themselves. And that's like my harsh criticism of what body positivity has become. It's no secret that body positivity was started by fat Black women and then co-opted by several different white women to try and improve their business structures. And I think, you know, mid to 2000s, early 2010s, that we needed body positivity after coming out of like thinazin. We needed that narrative. And so it was welcomed. It had a place. But now with influencing the bodies that dominate the things we're seeing are on the thinner side. And fat bodies aren't celebrated in body positivity because there is this idea that you have to want to look like that person you're praising. And so a lot of the influencers or even people just involved in the discourse that do very well, get lots of likes and keep the movement moving are midsize Mm -hmm. and they can shop at most stores. They have most things accessible to them and larger fat people in the movement tend to get ignored, especially the more oppression you add to their identities. So mm-hmm. like I think about Lashane is a black plus size model who has her own alternative clothing brand, who has been on the scene for years and has worked with so many different brands, so many different luxury brands. And they have under 200,000 followers on Instagram, which sounds like a lot. It sounds like a lot for them to have over 100,000 followers, but there are mid-sized people who have done far less for the movement who have millions of followers. And it shows a disparity mm-hmm. in what body positivity has become. So when I talk about movements, I started to change my language to body acceptance. I think that Mm -hmm. there is the idea with positivity that we have to love our bodies at all times. So like, why would we promote our bodies if we don't love it? I just don't think that's attainable for a lot of people, even if you're in an ideal body. And I also think on today's internet, internet, it means to be conventionally pretty, to be positive about our bodies. And that is also not attainable for most people. I think fat liberation is a movement that supports dismantling the social stigma against fat people in addition to showing up as fat people in the world. So that means implementing safer healthcare, accessibility, justice for all types of bodies. And fat liberation in itself is intersectional. I know that many parts of the movement were focused on the advancement of fat studies. So that's also dismantling anti-fat bias in studies that create the structures which were oppressed by. So fat liberation really seeks to break down structural change in the institutions that change how fat people are being treated, regardless of health status or size or opinions or appearance. So you don't have to be pretty to have access to healthcare. You also don't have to be healthy to have access to healthcare. Uh, and I think that's a real difference between where body positivity lies and fat liberation lies. Cause like, I don't have to love my body in order to see a doctor. That's not going to tell me how to change your body for me to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, you said so many good things there. But the mainstream body positivity movement is so hyper focused on like, okay, let's like embrace our cellulite and like love our belly rolls. And doesn't really step near the conversation of like, okay, people are denied 
healthcare denied life-saving surgeries because of their body size. People are discriminated against in, you know, the workforce and with respect to accessibility and things like that. And I'm curious, like, because I feel like some of those people probably know, like, do you think they know? Like, do you think they know and they just don't want to talk about that stuff because it feels too political? Or do you think it's like, and I mean, we don't know the answer because we're not talking to those people here, but (laughs) I'm just curious. I'm always sort of curious because for me, like, I feel like body positivity was kind of a gateway, right? And I Mm -hmm. appreciated what it did for me at that moment in time. And then as soon as I started to follow fat activists and really learn from them, and like, I remember kind of, you know, like, I feel like Virgie Tovar was one of the first people that I really like read their work and interviewed and things like that. And I was like, oh my gosh, like it totally blew my mind open that I couldn't not talk about those things or, you know, like have other people talk about those things on the podcast. Right. So I always sort of wonder with other people who are more really famous in the body positivity space, like, do they know and they just don't want to talk about it? Or do they just like maybe they're just still maybe they still hold internalized bias? I don't know. I think there's probably a small portion that don't know, but a large portion that does. I think that there are many outspoken people in the fat liberation movement that speak to it. I know specifically, I'm not going to name names, but I know specifically of an influencer who's midsize and that's their whole dealio. And they have, I think over a million followers. Um, and they came out with a swimsuit line and it went up to like a size 14. And oh, there wow. was a lot of backlash over being someone who has made their entire following, who can afford to live in a very expensive apartment, spending more money than many people can over the money they made using the body positive movement, and then not support fat people when they release a clothing line. It's yeah impossible not to know, in my opinion. When people come out of the woodwork and express their discontent with the choice, and then they didn't respond. Mm-hmm. They never made a response. They ignored it because they're making enough money that they can. They're profiting off mm-hmm. the movement enough from the midsize and smaller people that need to feel empowered and don't need the structural change as much as larger body people do. That they don't have to yeah. respond to the size 24, 26, 32 people who are saying, this was wrong. You used us to get enough clout to make those clothes. And now you won't clothe us. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea about that particular person. I am aware of other people that, you know, like promote brands and stuff that only maybe go up to like a 2X or something. And that in and of itself to me feels, I mean, probably not to the same extent (laughs) as the other one of like launching your own line, but still, yeah, like it's not truly... It's not truly what what the movement should be about. And and so I under I totally understand why that's so problematic and why people get really upset by that. Yeah, but I I think they know. I think they know that it exists, but there's like a threshold of financial power that once you reach that, you don't need to answer to as many issues. You're still making your money. You're still able to support yourself. And especially this was a white person. So there's not much that can tear them down. They weren't breaking any laws. They were just really pushing down people who supported them in order to make a buck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So interesting. I eh? Yeah. So what would you like to see change in that area? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. I mean, more fat bodies, period. I, I yeah. spoke about Lashane earlier. I would love to see them on the cover of every magazine. <laughs> that's... That's how Mm. I feel about it. I also, 
I don't know if you've watched the new show Monarch. It has Beth no. Ditto in it. But it's a new oh, show cool. on, I think, Fox. I can't remember. But Beth Ditto's in it. Beth Ditto is a singer from The Gossip. Uh, she is my personal hero. And I'm I'm in love. And very excited that she was leading in this show. And she's got star power. I mean, I've heard her voice live. It's unstoppable. And she seems... You know, maybe I put on her a pedestal, but she just seems wonderful. And in this show, she's the sister, but she's like a queer, fat country singer. And all the promotions for the show don't show her. She's oh, wow. uh, in the background or like not on their Instagram. When you watch the show, it is so clear that her character is well-liked. Her character can be the underdog that overtakes her rival sister um, and all the other thin presenters on the show. She just it exudes that energy and she does in real life, too. Like, I don't know how hard she has to act to have that come off because I've seen it. It's amazing. And I'd like to see more truth in those stories, because in real life, people love that energy. In real life, people love Beth Ditto and that she's playing herself in that show. I mean, other than being extremely, you know, rich from a famous country family, the energy and personality that she gives is very similar to who I think she is in real life, you know? And I'd like to see her celebrated that way. And I feel that way about every fat body person. I would love mm-hmm. to see them supported and celebrated for the things that they're doing, not despite their fatness, but because they can do it. Even in myself, I think I'm a very talented person. I mean, I love being a therapist uh, and I wish I was celebrated for doing therapy or, you know, I used to sing. I wish I was celebrated for that instead of being a person who was doing it while fat. But I recognize mm. the importance of celebrating that I do it while fat also. I just wish it wasn't the case. I wish that we didn't have to feed into our oppressions to get recognized for the hard work that we put in. And I'm sure that many different oppressed groups feel that way. This episode is brought to you by Ember and Ace. Ember and Ace is an athletic wear brand for plus size kids. The five piece essentials collection is launching this fall in kids size extra large to 4X. Subscribe to their newsletter at emberandace.com and be the first to know about new product sales and more. I love this brand. It's an amazing idea. If you know someone or have a child that could benefit from this, definitely pass them along to emberandace.com. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. One of the other things I really wanted to talk to you about is that I saw you talking about on your TikTok was this idea that if you heal your trauma, you'll lose weight, which I have seen a lot in terms of like people selling programs like that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) Fake news. Uh, I just think it's not real. (laughs) Yeah, just period, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I just think it's not real. I think that trauma causes a lot of things. Trauma changes the way our brains work, the way we process information. It can make pretty permanent changes to our behavior, so how we protect ourselves. And a result of that is that our bodies can change. Uh, I think for a lot of people, they lose and gain weight frequently when they process or go through trauma. I mean, even medical trauma is real, and that causes weight gain and loss. 
I don't think mm-hmm. that healing that trauma has a direct correlation to what happens to our body. And I do think that specifically influencers, but anybody, coaches like, therapists like, who promote the idea that by healing trauma, you can change a thin body are really just trying to make a quick buck and prey off of people's insecurities. But I I also think that if your goal in therapy is to lose weight, then you're not working on the real therapeutic goal. Weight loss is not a therapy goal. It usually is attached to more serious issues, deeper concerns that you have. I think about self-image. Self-image is a therapeutic goal. Being able to learn how to live in your body in a content way, to do things in your body regardless how you feel about it, that's a great therapy goal. But I didn't go through nutritional training to become a therapist. And I didn't have to ever walk into any gym to become a therapist. I didn't have to do yoga to become a therapist. I know nothing about physicality when it comes to like the wellness brigade. So my therapeutic goals can't be based off of the wellness structure. Takes a lot of training to do that. And I think that anyone who's trying to correlate those things are really just, like I said, preying on people who have insecurities in those areas. Mm -hmm. And it adds like another level of you know, stigma, because it's like, then someone must have trauma if they're, you know, if they're fat, like they must have experience. I mean, we've all experienced trauma, but, but it's like, it feeds into like another, you know, another harmful belief, like another kind of stereotype that people then make assumptions on based on someone's body size. Well, it's interesting too, because I think it would be hard to be in a fat body and not experience Mm -hmm. trauma, but that's the trauma. Mm -hmm. Like having people Mm -hmm. try and sell us things to lose weight, that's trauma. Constantly having ads shown to us about weight loss, about stomach amputation, right? That's trauma. The fact that, self-disclosure, I'm a diabetic, and my medication that's meant for glucose is being touted as a weight loss product. And so now my medication is harder to purchase yes. because they're giving it to mid-sized people to become thin. That's trauma. That's medical trauma. That now my doctor, instead of looking at my glucose readings, is thinking about how much weight are you losing on this product? That's medical trauma. And so, yes, as a fat person, I experience a great deal of trauma. But when I want to heal myself, That's not the trauma that I get to work on. I have to work on how to hold my own in this world. Healing that trauma is learning self, uh, I want to say like, not accountability, but my own authority over self. So like Mm -hmm. when I want to take in the criticism of others and when I want to say that that's not for me, that's for you. If you want to feel that way, you can, but my body's not wrong. I don't need to lose weight to heal. That's what my therapy would be focused on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good. I'm so glad that you that you mentioned that as well. So one of the other things that you talked about on your TikTok was was your chin and recording at like, quote unquote, in your words, an unflattering angle to rebel against fat phobia. So I know, yeah, I know a lot of people listening definitely struggle with a particular area of their body. And oftentimes it is, is their chin. So what's your advice to them if they hold shame about like a particular area of their body? Yeah, great question. You know, I have two sort of roads of thought. One is a bit of a therapy joke, which is I don't give advice. 
Uh, but (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah I I totally hear that it's the same in coaching (laughs) so from like a therapy standpoint I really think that exposure response prevention therapy is a great option for moments like this so exposure therapy is just exposing ourselves to the things that make us anxious the things that bring up worries for us and learning to deal with distress Right. Mm -hmm. Sitting through that and checking in on ourselves and learning how to get through those situations because they're going to exist. And I feel that's very much how we should approach our bodies, that our bodies change and there are going to be moments where we don't love it. And sometimes our bodies don't change for us to do that. We just wake up feeling differently that day. And so learning how to sit in distress, I think, is important. I don't use CBT CBT often, but I do think that CBT therapy is a great way to challenge some of those ideas about ourselves. So that's when we get a very distressing thought to come up with a challenge for it and work through it. Very similar to exposure. Mm -hmm. But I do think that a lot of the reasons we feel shame about our bodies are very real. People hate fat bodies. So I'd be hard pressed to find any amount of therapy that can combat decades or full lifetimes of fat phobia. And even if I feel great about my body, I can still see that my views on TikTok are just a fraction of what they are when I film at a higher angle. So those things are very real. It's okay to feel shame, right? Like, I think that it can be really hard. And my advice to myself would be to do the thing anyway, do the thing that I'm passionate about anyway. Even if I'm feeling shame about how I'm showing up doing it, and then I can do the work about the shame later. (laughs) Uh, I don't recommend that for everyone, right? I think that I'm at a time and place where I can do that. But I think for a lot of people, just accepting that there's a certain amount of discomfort that we're going to have to live in the world. That's the structure of our environment. So learning to live with some of that discontent, some of that uncomfortability will help us still be able to do the things that we want to do, like sing on a stage or dance in front of a group, or even just like get to the top of whatever profession we're interested in working in. But I also think it helps us relieve ourselves from this idea that we have to be productive on capitalist standards because we get to understand where our level of discontent is at. So when we're feeling like it's time to take a break, it'll feel really authentic to choose to do so. So not advice, but that's how I would do it. (laughs) Yeah, I know you said, oh my gosh, you said so many good things there. So as we kind of wrap things up here, I I did want to ask you one more thing. Like, what would you like to see change in therapy spaces? Such a big one for me, because I think there are so many different levels to it. I want to eradicate. Let me start that sentence over. I want to eradicate fat phobia across all lines. So of course, I want that for therapy too. But I want to make education more accessible and affordable so that there can be more diverse therapists to support our very diverse population. I want the process towards licensure to be more affordable and more accessible for the same reasons. I want therapy to open up its gates to more people. I think it's extremely outdated that internships are unpaid most of the time. So grad student has to be able to attend school. They have to show up to their internship. They're paying tuition to attend that internship are not getting paid and they have to have a full-time job. So it means that most students are showing up as new professionals already burnt out and then they need to complete their postgraduate hours They get a limited pay while they do that. A lot of times it's like maybe 
$10 an hour considering a 40 hour work week, right? And then we have to pay for an expensive license, pay for an expensive test. And sometimes, like in my state, you have to wait a couple years before they even award you that license and you can get paid more. So there's extreme limitations. And all of that, while we're doing that, we're also expected to be educated on every client's issue, to be educated on every culture so that whoever walks through our doors can be supported. We're expected to know a lot of bit of a lot of things and then talk to our clients about self-care. So we don't get a moment to breathe and can barely afford our bills a lot of the time. And there's already extreme gatekeeping. So we're seeing very small numbers of people of color as therapists, not because they're not capable of it, not because they don't want to be therapists, but because the profession prevents them from doing so. And the ones who are out there are overworked, burnt out and underpaid. So it's a profession that promotes the idea of your work being a passion project and be willing to make that sacrifice. And a lot of families can't do that. Specifically, a lot of people of color can't make that sacrifice because there are already so many other hurdles. So that's what I would like to see change. Fat phobia is part of that, right? Because it's part of what gatekeeps us. Going to school is hard because seating is different. So you walk into Mm -hmm. a classroom and you're already told as a fat bodied person that you don't fit in, right? But there are also so many other structures that make it hard to become a therapist. And honestly, it's not very attractive. So I'm in the camp of the passion project of I just love doing this so much that it I had the privilege of making that sacrifice. But I really understand why so many people can't and don't. Uh, it's not lucrative and it's not supportive. The work is worth it if you're privileged enough to make that choice. So I would like to see the structure of licensure and education change to support more people to become therapists and do this work for diverse populations. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that's really amazing. And like, so true. And I don't know enough about like the, I, I imagine it. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know the specifics, but yeah, like so much time, so much money, it really is like a privileged endeavor. I think with any schooling, really, like whether it's like, <laughs> you know, a lot of different pr- professions that require some sort of like masters, it's like, you know, it's really only for people who have a certain level of privilege or you're making massive, massive sacrifices to like squeak by to try and do it. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like one of the things like that I appreciate about coaching being an unregulated industry is that it's less expensive to get into it. I mean, you're going to have people who are like snake oil people, but <laughs> but I feel like you have that in every profession anyways. But yeah, I think it's a big reason why coaching should be more popular. I think yeah. that you're right. It takes a lot of that structure out of it. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard the battles between therapists and coaches. It ebbs and flows. But in mm-hmm. reality, there are a lot of people who can't access learning to do therapy and coaching as a way to be able to give that to people, to give healing to people. And a lot of therapists are choosing to become coaches for that exact reason. I mean, once a person is licensed, they're only licensed in that state. And then they can't give therapy to someone 10 minutes away who just happens to be in another state, even if it's virtual. So a lot of therapists opt to do coaching across state lines. And they're just very clear that it's different. It's different than therapy. But 
there's recognition that the structure isn't working. And so mm-hmm. we're having to find loopholes so that we can not only make enough money to survive, but be able to support clients across state lines, across country lines. And like, that's not even bringing to the conversation that in the UK, therapy is completely unregulated. So lots of different people. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yeah. Lots of different people can become therapists and they have very different educational backgrounds. And you might not know what you're getting when you look for a therapist. It's very hard to find that information out. So I think decolonizing our education is a big part of that. and lowering the disparity between coaches and therapists, because essentially we're helping the same clients. Yeah, just in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I could talk to you about that for a long time, but we have to wrap it up here. So it's been such a pleasure interviewing you. Where can, where can people find more of you, Ingrid? So I am on TikTok at Ingrid with Feelings. Uh, I do therapy within the state of Pennsylvania and you can find me at ingridpipes.com. That's where I'm at now. So you can shoot me an email if you want to start a conversation. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Rock on. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. It was such a pleasure to have Ingrid on the show and to hear all of her wonderful insights. You can find all the links and resources mentioned at summerinandin.com forward slash 245, as well as the transcript for this episode. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Summer Inanin. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts, search Eat the Rules, and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on.